a book club and podcast for anyone who wants to explore the best mysteries and thrillers ever written. I'm your host, Sarah Harrison. And I'm your host, Carolyn Daughters. Pour yourself a tea or a gin and tonic, but not a toxin. No, and, and join us on a journey through 19th and 20th century mysteries and thrillers, every one of them a game changer. Hello, everyone. We're, we're talking about The Innocence of Father Brown this mm. month. It's amazing. It's by G.K. Chesterton. We have a lot to say about this book. But before we get into that, I want to introduce our sponsor for Tetonic and Toxin. This month, our sponsor is Grace Sigma. Grace Sigma is a boutique process engineering consultancy run by our own Sarah Harrison. Ooh. Imagine that. <laughs> Grace Sigma works nationally in such industries as finance, telecom, and government. They use lean methods to assist in documentation de- development, data dashboarding, storytelling, process visualization, training, and project management. Whether you're a small business looking to scale or a large company whose processes have become tangled, Grace Sigma can help. You can learn more at gracesigma.com. You sure can. You can go to that website and it's going to work. And... Th- Unlike other months when we've talked about this website, <laughs> this website will actually work. If you type that in, there will be actual content there. It's going to be good. We also have a super special listener this month. Her name is Jennifer Gardner, and she is listening from Chicago, Illinois. Jennifer is a recent listener, and she has been all kinds of awesome in reaching out and giving us five-star reviews. So if you haven't done that, you should go and do it, listener. Wait, so where do people give us these reviews? I think on whatever podcast platform they're oh, listening to, they can. I, I love it. So whatever your podcast platform of choice is, we're probably on it, and we're, we're, we're open to five-star We're on all reviews. the platforms now. We're on all of them, I think. Oh, yeah, all of them. Apple was like the last bastion, and we got on there. So, so. we are we're, we are everywhere you could possibly listen to a podcast. Apparently, we are, and and we're open to five star reviews. I think wide open, wide open. Go out there and make some. Mm-hmm. So thank you, Jennifer. You are going to be receiving in the mail a beautiful sticker because we know you like mail. Very pretty sticker. If you like mail, let us know. On tetonicandtoxin.com. Yes, all you have to do is comment on one of our comment forms on the website or comment on our Instagram or Facebook pages at Tetonic and Toxin. Yeah, send us some thoughts. Do some stuff. All right. We are reading such a cool book today, and we have a really cool guest, but we'll get to that in a second. Before we get there, The Innocence of Father Brown. That is our book. In 1908, G.K. Chesterton wrote a well-known work of Christian apologetics called Orthodoxy. In the preface, he says, the work is an explanation, not of whether the Christian faith can be believed, but of how he himself personally came to believe it. Chesterton saw Christianity as the answer to natural human needs, not as an arbitrary truth received from outside the bounds of human experience. Chesterson also wrote, especially, 
a series of mystery stories starring a Catholic priest. Father Brown is based on Father O'Connor. I thought that was interesting. Mm-hmm. A priest Chesterson knew. One day, Chesterson and Father O'Connor were talking to some Cambridge undergraduates about philosophy. The students admired the priest's intellect, but dismissed him as being naive about the real world. Chesterson said he almost laughed out loud, because the priest knew far more about the real world than the Cambridge man. As Chesterson writes a story called the Blue, in a story called The Blue Cross, a man who does next to nothing but hear men's real sins is not likely to be wholly unaware of human evil. Chesterson wrote about domestic murders with human motives. His stories have an unlikely detective and a limited list of suspects. Chesterson's writing is lovely, and his mysteries include philosophical reflections and a moral, or maybe several. Father Brown solves crimes by getting inside the criminal mind and the criminal heart. He evaluates the human being instead of investigating external evidence. He often seems naive, but hiding behind his plain exterior is an intellect that's on fire. Chesterson called Edgar Allan Poe's detective stories the best ever written. Poet and short story writer Jorge Luis Borges in turn called Chesterson Poe's great disciple. Today, we're excited to talk about The Innocence of Father Brown. It's our first book selection of 2023. You can find the entire list of books for 2023 on our website, tetonicandtoxin.com, where you can comment and get a sticker, folks. Yes. Check out the website and comment, and then you get all the great information on the site, and you get this beautiful sticker. It's a win-win-win. We have a guest today. It's our very first guest. Our guest today is Deb Donner. Deb yay. is a yay, Deb. We are we are very <laughs> excited about this. Uh, she's got to watch our um, very seamless prep in action. Yeah, we did really good and we're super smooth. Yeah, it was really. I mean, she was. I mean, I'm not going to s- speak for her, but she would probably say she was it's impressed. Impressive. <laughs> <laughs> Deb is a self-described bookaholic. Reading is her escape and her inspiration. Deb's favorite. Current favorite genre is memoir. She believes everyone has a unique life story, and she loves hearing other people's stories. Part of her own story involves how she survived being in a religious cult. Her mother joined the cult when she was 12 years old, when Deb was 12 years old, and Deb escaped at age 19. She finds writing about that experience more healing than therapy. Deb also enjoys crafting, and her latest joy is slow-stitching bits of fabric together into fabric stories. Deb shares shares her crafty fun on social media at Deb Donner 62. She shares her experience of being in a cult on social media at Let's Talk Cults. And we're going to link those in the show notes. We are going to do that. So Welcome, Deb. Hey, thank you. Deb. I'm glad to be here. Our first guest ever. Yes. We're so excited. <clears throat> yes, Thanks. no pressure, but this is, uh, you're basically modeling how this is going to go for everyone else. So <laughs> luckily you can handle the pressure and we are very grateful for that. Yeah, Deb is a pro at podcasts. This is like her second one today. Second second guest I'm a little intimidated personally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm never guesting on podcasts. No. <laughs> I want to start, though. I do. For some, I don't know why I do, but I, I suddenly want to. Folks, we're open to being guests on your podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we would love it. Deb. Yes. You, you were really excited about picking this book. And 
I want to know why. What drew you to Father Brown? Um, reading through your list of books, um, and I'm, I, I feel ashamed to say this, but I don't read a lot of mystery-type books. I read a lot of books with mystery as the premise. Sure. <clears throat> but this one got my attention because of um, the religious aspect of it. I thought, who is this Father Brown? Why is he innocent? Because in my world, priests are not innocent. Uh. <laughs> and um, I wanted to know a little bit more about the man who wrote this book and these mm-hmm. stories. So I, I just did a little research. I'm like, yeah, this is this is the one I want to be a part of. Did it live up to your expectations? It did. <laughs> Tell it me. It did in some ways. In other ways, it blew me away with the... Um, we'll get into it a little bit more, I'm sure, but... <clears throat> the writing style um and i was expecting to be preached at and oh really yeah i really was because i think who picks a book that is going to preach at them though well, because so I, wanted to, I wanted to shoot it down and i wasn't oh able you to. picked a book you wanted to shoot down on the podcast <laughs> no 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 i, I didn't wanted... know you're so it's an insidious <laughs> guest <laughs> no that's that's no that's not really true but i wanted to understand how somebody could write through the eyes of this pastor. Yeah. And I wanted to understand why he was innocent. Mm-hmm. Like, innocence, that, that is intriguing. Mm-hmm. And I'm still wondering that. Okay. <laughs> After reading the stories. Um, and innocence in the way of he, he didn't commit crimes. He, yes. didn't, he wasn't the antagonist. Or innocent in the fact that his approach to solving crimes comes from an innocent perspective. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's interesting. I guess I almost thought, like... I didn't have any idea before I read it. Mm -hmm. I'm always like, you know, similar to what you said. I've read very few of these books. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've never just kind of like been a mystery junkie. I'm just a fiction junkie. So Mm -hmm. I'm into it, but I haven't read it. But I kind of, after reading it, I've taken it as kind of like, oh, he's not so innocent in terms of naive. Mm -hmm. He's not kind of like the fool that people keep mistaking him for. He was so clever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I think I was thinking of it as sort of a a purity of mind, body, spirit, and Mm -hmm. nobody's perfect. And, you know, this guy is, you know, he's plain, he's dull. He, in the first story, seems naive. Really just the sort of person anybody could... Um, take advantage of and over the course of the stories he starts in my mind evolving as a character as if G.K. Chesterton mm-hmm. got to know his own character which mm-hmm. is not uncommon hmm. right yeah I liked what he said I wrote down a quote from him from the story The Hammer of God where Father mm-hmm. Brown says I am a man and therefore have all devils in my heart mm-hmm. which he's not perceiving himself in any way as like some sort of innocent or superior mm-hmm. he's using his own his own like flawed self and his knowledge of human behavior mm-hmm. to really be while not a criminal mm-hmm. not not an innocent minded person but he, he could right. be a criminal if he wanted to yeah. because he knows he's heard he's one of those people who's heard everything like either right. you're not going to take this guy by surprise i wrote down another quote i loved from uh what was it the last story about three tools of death? Mm-hmm. He actually said, "If I ever murdered somebody, I dare say it might be an optimist." 
It's <laughs> 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 like I feel you, but um, yeah, he does. He doesn't see himself above any of it, really. He's just in the role of the priest, and he's there to do his duty. It seems like yeah, yeah, and he knows he knows human nature so well that he's able to identify and see these these sins, quote unquote, in these criminals before the police can or other people who are in these the same area at the same time. I'm like, how is he picking this out? Yeah. How is he finding this? I'm like, is this guy just writing him as a superhero <laughs> pastor, preacher, religious dude? Or is it what you just said? He understands human nature mm-hmm. and he gets to that so fast. Yeah. Stories, yeah. Yeah, and he's never there to. Well, we'll get we'll get into a lot. I don't. And he's just, not. Judgmental. I can go off on him. Yes, yeah. he's so not no there judging. to be the judge. His yeah. intuition to me seemed sort of familiar because we recently read Lady Molly of yes. Scotland Yard, mm-hmm. and she walks into a room and take her takeaway from whatever the conversation is is completely different from what anybody else's would be. Mm-hmm. She has a sixth sense about what's happening. And I think Father Brown does as well. I feel like these two would have a lot to talk about at a dinner party. Yeah, she, they position her, or the writer sort of positions her from the position of women's intuition. Mm-hmm. Whereas Father mm-hmm. Brown is almost like just this deep knowledge of human nature. But yeah, they were, they had a lot of similarities in the way they would come in and just like read the room. And even the way they were written, where it kind of seems like the stories weren't super connected. But, um, right. They, they ended up being somewhat connected. And so just to clarify, the, the Innocence of Father Brown is a collection of short stories. And each story, you know, they're, they're pretty quick reads, I thought. Mm-hmm. And they sort of connect in a way. There's a second character who's in many of them. His name is Flambeau. Yes, I like that guy. And he's sort of the the flim-flam artist from Paris. I like their terminology. They call those guys adventurers. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's a romantic way to put it. For the most part, Flambeau's not this dangerous man. He's not a murderer. (laughs) He takes advantage of people, and we see him in action, and he's successful with almost everyone anywhere he goes, but he's not successful if Father Brown is around. He's a super thief. He can thief anything. And he does it in, like, he gets called an artist several times for the way that he thieves. But um, I think, exactly, he's an artist. I kept looking for his motivation. Hmm. And maybe you can, can help me identify it, but I couldn't understand his motivation for being a thief. Was he just... A sociopath? <laughs> was, he, was he just this poor dude who Chesterson writes, you know, about these classes of people almost, where these there's these people who are, you know, dark skinned and servants and done in the luck, and then there's mm-hmm. this, there's you know the aristocrats or these people who have money up here. Is he just of that ilk? Mm-hmm. And so that is his personality and his being. Or what is his motivation? Well, he almost turns that. What story was it? Kind of turns it on his head about the fish. Mm. What was the fish story? What did they call it? The twelve fishermen. Oh, the twelve yes. fishermen. Yes. Okay. Yeah, where Flambeau actually perpetrates his crime because he can so perfectly fit in with the gentlemen that yes. the servants don't even yes. recognize him. I don't. That's a good question because I feel like I feel Chesterson like, didn't really get into that. <laughs> no. I think that the the describing him as an artist is 
one of the best ways to say it, he's an artist in the way that Sherlock Holmes is an artist. He's an artist in the way that Hercule Poirot is an artist. They have this special talent and they want to challenge them, challenge themselves, and so there is a you know the game is afoot sort of idea. Sherlock Holmes would have made it an amazing criminal, right? Flambeau, when he is eventually saved by, I, I think that the influence of Father Brown, he makes a really wonderful innocent man, and mm-hmm. he in fact turns his attention to solving crimes. He becomes a detective. Mm-hmm. I think it's this special skill set and this desire to be the best you can be at whatever the thing is that you're good at. Mm. So we all have like something in our lives that we're really good at. We put our time and energy and attention to it. And for Flambeau, it was take, you know, putting putting one over on people, taking things from them. Because he didn't get the sense that he was stealing all these diamonds or jewels or sapphires so he could then buy himself a villa in France. I never got that sense. I think it was the challenge of stealing it. Yeah, and I think I think adventurer is a really good way to describe. I don't even know if we have thieves like this anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're just in movies we do. They're out there to steal the the world's largest diamond or something, but yeah, I, it it seems like the challenge of accomplishment and and just he always mm-hmm. kind of positioned himself as never really hurting anyone. Right. And while he may not have given it to the poor, I almost feel like maybe he was a Robin Hood type character. Like well, he felt like it wasn't bad because he's taking from the rich. But he also gives several of the items back. Yes, when, when other Father caught. Brown is there. It's like, <laughs> he walks away. Repent. Yeah, he walks yeah. away so easily. Like, okay, that wasn't his motivation. So he, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Just the thrill of being and, the best. And, and then he seems to disappear. So he, right. like, in the first story, there's uh, a, a police detective hiding in the bushes <laughs> behind listening to this entire confession where Father Brown has discovered who Flambeau really is and he is thwarted his his plans and then we think i'm thinking okay flambeau is now off in prison yeah i thought he got arrested after <laughs> yeah. the first story oh no no he's in the next story yeah. it's crazy yeah what happened <laughs> being the bad boy that's what a lot gets kind of left out of these stories which is interesting i i liked that though yeah I, at first the first couple stories i was like oh this is the end and those those moments when i'm like <gasps> and then it's the end i'm like okay but I think, and I think you were talking about this on your last episode, there's a there's a bit of not building up that history or telling the backstory mm-hmm. that makes this more intriguing mm-hmm. to me. I don't need to know all of that. I don't need to know where this goes. It's like, oh, wow, mm-hmm. I can use my imagination or I can, you know, continue on mm-hmm. and find out what happens next. And I didn't need any closure. Yeah. <laughs> Because it's not it's not about it's about him, but it's not about him. Right. We don't know his parentage. We don't know where he was born. We don't know even where he lives. He's always serving a new parish, it feels every story. Mm-hmm. We we don't know a lot of the details of his life, but we know the man. Mm-hmm. We know the human being who is able to detect the truth. Mm-hmm. Is there I was wondering this, is there a benefit to being sort of this featureless, shabby, clumsy, brown-haired, blinking blinking guy who comes into the room and is barely noticed. 
I mean, there are disadvantages to that, I'm sure, where you, you blend in with the wall and people don't remember you. But on the flip side, there might be benefits to somebody not really paying attention to the fact that you're there. Think of all the things you can see and hear <laughs> in plain sight when nobody even cares or notices you're there. Like my um, high school years. <laughs> <laughs> so, were you that, solving mysteries in high school? Then? <laughs> no, I was. But were so in high school? Did you feel not seen? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, and I could I could hear. I, I would hear people talk about things like I knew who was having sex with who, you know, and who was seeing who and who was, you know, mm-hmm. all of these things, who was getting the F, who was getting the A. Because nobody, I was one of those people who nobody saw when I was in the room. Did you feel like it was an advantage or disadvantage? Oh, I hated it at the time. Oh, really? Yeah, but now years later, talking to people, I'm like, yeah, that was that was kind of cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you remember when you were ignoring me? Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> No, but I, yeah, I get, I get what you're saying, like, with Father Brown, and I could never, in these stories, I couldn't tell if that was his, just his personality, mm-hmm. or if that was his thing, like mm-hmm. his, his, uh, his psychological manipulation. Oh, oh interesting. I was yeah. thinking, I wasn't thinking psychological manipulation, but I want to hear about that. I was thinking superpower. <laughs> because when I was a child, I wanted to make myself invisible. And oh. so I would close my eyes and sometimes open my eyes. And I wonder, the people are still here. Do they see me? Oh, <laughs> they do. Someone just pointed at me and said something. But invisibility is, I mean, that's interesting. Hiding in plain sight a theme that we've been talking about in this mm-hmm. podcast since Edgar Allan Poe's The Purloined Letter. Oh. This is a guy hiding in plain sight. Yeah. Maybe He's, this book is misnamed. Maybe it should be The Invisibility. <laughs> Father Brown. Is an interesting, you know, and now that you say that, I think about his role because I was super sad. I felt super sad about him when, what was the one... Or they had the the wiggly dagger. Yes. And the doctor yep. confessed. Which one was that? Mm. Okay. There that are many, was... many stories here. So we've got to figure out I, which one I that felt is. I the same, though. I, w- I felt sorry for him. When he says, he says to Flambeau, where my was it? You are my friend. only friend. Yes. Oh. Yes. And I just want to sit with you. Uh, is it the, the wrong, wrong shape? shape? Yes, it's the wrong shape. Mm-hmm. To the wrong shape, the summary of that short story, just quickly, a poet's suicide note strikes Father Brown as having the wrong shape, much like the dagger that killed him. This clue helps Father Brown solve the mystery of the poet's death. (laughs) And so in that story, he says, he says what? You are my only friend in the world, to Flambeau, Mm -hmm. the guy he got caught three Mm -hmm. times, and I want to talk to you, or perhaps be silent with you. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, he's being invited into all of these parlors and all of these homes and all of these places. Mm-hmm. But it's always sort of within his role. And so, so Deb, my father is a minister. And growing up, I know that can be a super isolating mm-hmm. role because people have expectations and they, you know, and they engage with you in your role. And you expectations don't of your father or yes, of you? Yes, well, both. Okay. But in the, in this case, I'm thinking of my father as kind of more parallel to pa- Father Brown. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, and it can be very isolating. I know growing up, my parents felt very isolated often from, you know, other folks in the congregation because of the way they were perceived or the way they're viewed. And, you know, you're always the minister and he's always Father Brown. So it's like he gets to go everywhere, but he doesn't get to be friends with everybody. Mm-hmm. Intimacy is missing. Intimacy, yes. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. a true friendship, somebody you can... Mm-hmm. So for me, true intimacy is is not just somebody you can share everything with. It's somebody who you're comfortable being silent with. Right. Do you have... Who, that seems like a lot. I mean, maybe my husband. Do you have friends you just hang out and be silent with? I have friends I can be silent with. Do you? I'm going to be silent with you right now. And on that note, the podcast (laughs) is wrapping. No, we're just joking. No, no, no. I I have friends I can be silent with and not nervous about being silent. Mm -hmm. And I have friends who have been silent with me, but you get a sense of their comfort in the silence. So it's, there's, there's a uncomfortable silence with some people where, you know, I've taught a lot of classes and, you know, I'm, I'm teaching a freshman college literature class or writing class or something and you ask a question of the class and there's dead silence and boy you're sweating bullets at least the first year or so you're teaching it's it's intimidating being comfortable with silence is something that takes practice Mm -hmm. and also a comfort level with either what you're doing teaching or with the people who you're surrounding yourself with one of my first therapists, when I escaped the cult, um, told me, she said, you have a, you have a, what did she say, Some, an aversion to silence. Hmm. And I said, I, I do. And she, she, I said, what do you mean? She said, because you're, you need to fill every space, every moment, every air molecule around you with some kind of noise. Either you're moving or fidgeting or talking or nodding your head or responding and she said, "There's, there's a, a comfort and a, and a um, trust in a silent moment." How did you feel you about that? It was terrifying. Oh, really? oh gosh, it was terrifying at first. She would actually practice with me sitting silently, oh, really, and just trusting that it was a safe moment. Like I didn't have to perform. I didn't have to do anything. I didn't have to say anything. Or, or entertain mm. the masses. So what's scary yeah. about the silence? I, not that I don't have any sense of what it could be because I've experienced it, but what? let's just put words around what this idea is. What's scary about it? For me, it was sort of a PTSD response to being in a place where you didn't know what was coming next. You didn't know what was going to come out of the silence at you. Mm sort of a so it's almost like a little protection there mm-hmm. if you if you're kind of directing mm-hmm. the attention then things aren't going to come sideways at right, you right That's so interesting that, that line i had that line written down too oh mm-hmm. yeah and they're sitting on the bench and he's like you know or maybe just be silent i'm like oh mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I get that mm-hmm. i get that and he's gone from you know this this man who's being hunted by this you know rock star detective in the beginning of the book to where he's sitting with the preacher on a bench as a friend Mm -hmm. that was big for me flambeau's serving a purpose in his life as Mm -hmm. well he served obviously a big purpose in flambeau's Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Flambeau's not a criminal any longer. He, After the first four or six stories, somewhere in there, Flambeau reforms. But it's not a one-way relationship. It's mm-hmm. It's the rare, probably from a priest or a pastor's perspective, the rare time when somebody is able to actually be there also for you in a in a really human way mm-hmm. and not the i'm going to always remember that you're the priest and always have this invisible wall between us and so forth but i can mm-hmm. actually be in your presence you can be in mine and we can be real people yeah and that story too it, like it it kind of came off in a couple layers mm-hmm. right because first father brown said this to flambeau and they're sitting there and it's not until later like at the end where you find out at this point uh father brown already knew that the doctor had ki- not just killed the guy but killed him with father brown in the room right mm-hmm. and so you think back the father brown knew it then did he know it at the time like he was trying to distract him by looking at this paper and it almost seems that Father Brown looked at the paper mm-hmm. too long and he kind of just mm. let him do it. Mm. He let him distract him while he went over and stabbed the guy and came back. Mm-hmm. And I thought, whoa, why? Though? is that what he's sitting with? Wow. Right. I hadn't thought like, of yeah. it, his being mm. aware in the moment. I didn't either. There was a couple of things that it was kind of talking about. Just He was almost abnormally interested in the paper. Sure. And for somebody obser- as observant of Father Brown, yeah, I don't think somebody could just go murder a guy in front of him and he not notice. Wow. I think, though, that Father Brown susses out an entire like the, a family situation, like in, in another story where he's talking about this man who's just so happy and he entertains everybody else. And yes. He's like the life of the party. He's the family. optimist he's willing to his murder. Family, right, and his family are just these... You know, pathetic creatures roaming around looking forlorn and lost. And, you know, I think that he, not only does he see a situation for what it is at the moment, the murders, the mystery, the what's coming, but he, relationally, he looks at these people mm-hmm. and he susses out the situation on a different level. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what I, that's what I saw in that story. Like, yeah. wow. How did, how, wow. Like that moment when I'm like, <gasps> Yeah, <laughs> it was really it was really fascinating, and the friendship there to me was just really fascinating. Mm-hmm. In that story, I was reminded of the Big Bow mystery, where the murder. Spoiler alert! <laughs> Pause. Go back. Read Big Bow. Pause. So this is just f- flip this forward thirty seconds if if you haven't read it yet, because you should read it and then also listen to our our podcast episode on. Big Bow, the Big Bow mystery. The detective walks in the room to discover the potential murder, but yes, commits exactly. the murder. Exactly. And so to me, that story in Father Brown borrowed from Big Bow mystery. I was wondering mm. if it was a direct like lift. I mean, but it is kind of the the deal with the locked room mystery. Yeah. And everyone's it was so bizarre the way they were kind of throwing their suspicion on the like Indian guru. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, then, and everyone's kind of participating in it. But f- like Father Brown takes his moment to not like what's going on with kind of Eastern religions, but yeah. he's not diverted by it. He is like, he still knows what's going on with the actual murder. I think one of the things that bothered me about this book, and it's 
one of the few things because so much about it is so lovely and edifying and I, I finished the stories and I'm still thinking about them afterward. Some of these stories I finished weeks ago, I still think about a couple of them. Mm-hmm. Is there is a casual racism in some of the stories oh, that yeah. I thought to myself, why why couldn't J G. K. Chesterton have been bigger than this? Above this, why couldn't why do, why do this? Why include this? Do you feel like it was like actual racism? Racism because I kind of felt like it was a, a religiously based. Like he mostly disliked the Eastern religions and kind of how what what he felt like they represented or what they stood for. I think possibly, but then the religion that you know, this is the religion that I love and respect. And there's this other religion over here, a whole body of religions, Eastern religions, what whatever we want to say. But then there's a physicality ascribed to the individual who practices that religion as if if you are a member of that religious faith, faith, you look a particular way, you look scowling or evil or angry or and that bothered me. It and it bothered me all the more. Because, you know, this book was written in 1910. It was published in 1910. We've seen in the Victorian novels uh, casual racism and all this, oh, yeah. all the stuff. Like all of them. <laughs> and and uh, heads up, folks, it's not going to stop in the next couple books we're reading. It's right. just it, it, it's it's a product of of this time and these super smart, insightful authors could not. It, in many cases, get past it. And it's disappointing. It's, for me, particularly disappointing that G.K. Chesterton couldn't get past it. Tell me why particularly. Because Father Brown is so subtle. And actually, I want to hear, Deb, what you think about this. You know, you had said, well, I came to this book thinking I'm going to be able to, you know, come at it from this angle and that angle. and mm-hmm. all, And it's not a preaching book it's a it's a really interesting profound i think it's pd james wrote something like it's a terrible paraphrase but uh gk chesterton never wrote an ugly or clumsy sentence they're beautiful sentences there's no preaching there's no hitting you over the head and you you leave the story and you think about it for the next Mm -hmm. several weeks or potentially months Mm -hmm. my expectations for this guy are sky high so when he falls down on the job periodically, it's upsetting to me. But I'm, I want to yeah, see Deb, Deb tell us more from your say. cult perspective. Well, I did a little bit of reading on G.K. Chesterton before I started the book because I wanted to understand the author. I need to understand an author and, and see who this person is mm. before I read their work. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, and I, I, I read that he wrote that book, Orthodoxy, a Christian apologist, and... I mean, he was a prolific writer. He wrote 4,000 essays. Wow. And was published in multiple um, uh, newspapers in London during his life. He wrote 200 short stories, several hundred poems, 80 books. Mm -hmm. So he was a prolific writer. But I think uh, in a lot of what I read, too, is he was a racist. He was an anti-Semitic. And some of his early cartoon characters were... um, you know, of Jews stereotyped as greedy, mm-hmm. disloyal communists. Mm-hmm. And I think that, yes, it was very definitely in the times that he lived in. Mm-hmm. But I also think that there's this grooming of um, 
society as a whole to see these black and white, um, to think black and white as, you know, Christians, religious, white, good, mm-hmm. yeah. everything else, not good, and disparaging of those not good or sinful things is your duty as a Christian. Mm. You know, that's kind of that's that was my perspective of this, and I expected to see more of it in the book. Yeah, mm-hmm. there there are some very <laughs> racist. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's the N word in our favorite story. Oh right, um, but that's not coming from Father Brown, right? But but it's not coming from Father Brown. It's coming, it's from, it's the coming from the doctor who was trying right. to pin the murder on so him. So I think there was a you know a that sort of surprising. a normalizing mm-hmm. of this type of of ideology and mentality. Yeah, at the time that. Um you know, you couldn't get away with it today, of course. That's true. But on top of that, he this his writing is beautiful. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's very descriptive. He had me from the, from his first sentence because mm-hmm. he can put you in a scene. Yeah. And as a writer, I, I really enjoy that. Yeah. I like being taken into a story and, and shown everything and feeling like I'm right in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. So, yes, his writing is very beautiful. But unfortunately, there is this, this aspect of it that we can't ignore i think (laughs) well here's here's the other part for me that i thought maybe it's more religiously focused than like literally race focused and that was the was it the hammer from god Mm. and that really reminded me because in that i think the smith isn't catholic the smith is protestant i want to say he's presbyterian Mm -hmm. and in that he makes a lot of comments about presbyterianism (laughs) and (laughs) scottish religion yes is commented on and how um, he calls the Smith not even a Christian. Mm-hmm. And that reminded me, I was like, oh, right, Catholics have closed communion. Mm-hmm. And this this was really common, like if you weren't Catholic, you weren't Christian. And that was much more common to think of it back in that day. So even though I don't think anyone would consider Presbyterian not a Christian now, that's what he says. And he kind of goes on to kind of think about the, that's the problem with Scotch religion, they're always up on the peaks looking down on everyone. Mm. They're not down in the valleys, you know, like learning humility and to see how small they are. And so that's where I kind of thought that the primary lens is sort of this old, old style Catholic Mm -hmm. lens. And even so, like... But he's not Catholic. G.K. Chesterton's not Catholic. No, but the priest is. Right. Father Brown says... G.K. Chesterton becomes Catholic. Right. Okay. In later right. years, after this book is published. But when he's, he writes oh, his really? book... Oh, really? Well, that's really interesting. But he's, he's Anglican when he writes this book. Huh. I didn't realize that either. That's mm-hmm. really interesting. But that father, he's writing Father Brown taking those same positions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I know it's... It, I don't think about it now, but I know, you know, having been really raised in a very Protestant religion... Mm-hmm that it can be extremely Mm -hmm. (laughs) anti-Catholic, like to the point of like, that's paganism, you know? And so that level of divisiveness along religious lines Mm is, I think, maybe not something you see as much today. And I was raised Catholic, and I remember when someone very dear to me died in my early 20s, and family members telling me, and, and the person who died who was dear to me was Christian, but not Catholic. And family members consoling me by saying, I think he probably still made it to heaven. Because he well, wasn't. That's, that's a new perspective. That's not what Father Brown right, said. Right. Th- that whole like Catholicism as this thing outside of Christianity. Mm-hmm. And really, all, all of these, whether it's a different religion 
all together or it's a different branch on a tree that us versus them mm-hmm. mentality i i always thought was really interesting well and i think like father brown never sort of seems to take it as i don't feel like as an enemy but he almost addresses in each story, and I really want to get your perspective on this one, um, the Apollo story, which is actually about a cult leader. <laughs> um, he's always just sort of taking it as, as he, here's the flaw in moral thinking here, you know, and it, it's always addressing these different, um, maybe misguided ways of thought that have led to these misguided modes of life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so let me just quickly summarize this, and then, Deb, we want to hear what you have to say. The Eye of Apollo is a short story where Kalon, I'm going to say that that's how it's pronounced, I have no idea. (laughs) Kalon's the head of a new religion, and he sets up his office conveniently in the same building where Flambeau has his office. And Kalon professes to believe that staring at the sun isn't dangerous, and that wearing spectacles is a medical crutch, and he presumably has a number of other interesting beliefs. And he converts one of the women, Pauline, who has a typewriting business in the building. So I mean, what, what you probably had a particular take on this story that was... You know, I really didn't. I, oh, my, really? So, so t- removing the religious aspect of this, because mm-hmm. I expected to see more of it in Father mm-hmm. Brown. I expected to see Chesterson create this superhero... Um, mm. Catholic priest who, you know, came in and figured everything out because he was <laughs> smarter. But I think there's a lot of humanism in this as well mm-hmm. from from in the writing. I didn't even I didn't even see this as a cult thing. I saw it as a and a manipulation. Oh mm-hmm. yeah. You know, okay. it was like like here he comes in and he is wooing and manipulating somebody and it was didn't even occur to me that it was Cultic. Oh, that's cultic. Interesting. That interesting. I thought that would be the one because, like, oh, well, she's going to have thoughts about the Eye of Apollo <laughs> then, where no, this no. crazy leader is like, if you were healthy, you could stare at the sun. Yeah. <laughs> like, what? I just thought, well, he's, you know what? No. There was a point where I thought, oh, wow, this dude reminds me of Lou, the leader of the cult really? that I was in. So I made that parallel, but I didn't mm. go so far as to say, you know, cultish. But, but I think it was because my prejudice about the time period and the religious aspect of more it that would not have been the terminology of the time mm. that would mm-hmm. not have been the purpose for i think the purpose yeah. for writing that was showing these you know these people as not catholic or not christian mm-hmm. not cultic yeah that makes Does that sense, make sense? Yeah. well Kalon even referred to himself with that same word adventurer mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So i may be an adventurer but you are a murderess. There were there were there was terminology like that through the whole book, like adventurer and and the fairies fairy tales. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of, I think I wanted to figure out how many times the word fairy tale or the term fairy tale was used mm. or fairies fairy land or something. Oh, interesting. And it it was a lot in that one story. Yeah, and it it actually refocused my attention onto oh this person sees things more as real and unreal, mm-hmm. reality versus you know, um, unreality. But I felt like tales. all these stories were a little bit fairy tale like. They so uh, I, I was 
writing a little bit about uh, the willing suspension of disbelief, which I think is Coleridge, right? Yep. That idea that if the tale is well enough told, it the the reader can distance themselves, recognizing that yes, this probably could not or would not happen, but I'm going along for the ride because I'm invested emotionally in the story, in the characters, in the resolution of this plot. I I felt like with most of these stories, they required a willing suspension of disbelief. And I thought that was a charming element of the stories. I don't, I wouldn't count that as a criticism from my perspective, but at no point in time did I think, oh, I could picture this happening. Right. Hmm. That's, I guess I didn't think about it one way or the other. (laughs) And maybe that's because they did a good job suspending my disbelief. Mm -hmm. But I mean, it was never to the point where I thought like, I didn't, I didn't believe the resolution, you know, like sometimes there's a resolution. I'm like, but what about, mm-hmm. but, um, right. I didn't feel that way about any of them. I always thought they were very kind of touching and with depth yeah, and, and believable. Although the situation is kind of wild. I mean, life is kind of wild mm-hmm. once you try and put people's stories down. I mean, your story is bonkers, Deb. <laughs> <laughs> but also in the book, we weren't being hammered in the head. Right. With a a a theology or a belief or a a point or a uh what's the word i'm looking for um you know a resolution mm-hmm. it was more i'm going to tell the story i mean there were moments like i said where i was like okay that can happen but it, there were also moments like oh my gosh no yeah oh, oh wow mm-hmm. i didn't see that coming mm-hmm. but like a fairy tale for a child has that obvious moral right and right. this didn't f- these didn't feel like f- fairy tales for children. These felt almost like fairy tales for adults sort of thing. Yeah, I feel like what we got most of, even, you know, when there was a moral or several morals, what we got most of is is empathy. Mm-hmm. Like the empathy of Father Brown, mm-hmm. not only with the people being murdered, but with the murderer. There was always this deep empathy and and he just desired them to confess and to change their lives. Yeah, the confessing that was the confess, and and but then he would let them go. Like he let yeah. the murderers walk away, and I'm like, what? Okay, I'm going to go to cha- the next chapter because certainly these guys are being arrested. And- <laughs> I want to talk more about that. I know we're I know we're at time, but I do want to talk more about that. Maybe we should do that in the next episode. Yeah, we're going to do one more episode, and Deb has agreed to stick around with us, so we're really grateful for that. We have a lot more to say. We want to hear more about Deb and talk more about these amazing stories in the innocence of Father Brown. Yeah, so come back next episode, and in the meantime, stay toxic.